let's listen to God's voice through Ephesians chapter 6 and the first nine sentences. It's on the screen or it's on your lap. Paul writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. So we've been journeying through this book called Ephesians for, for quite a while now, and it can be summarized, I think, with three words. Here they are, raised, seated, standing. Raised, seated, standing. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, Paul summarizes the gospel and says, you've been raised with Christ, you're now seated with him. And next week, we're going to see the third of these three tableaus, raised, seated. In chapter 6, a bit later on, you are to now stand in Christ and in his strength. So this is a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is not something of an individual identity alone, but it is to be united and a new person in Christ, a new identity, and therefore you're part of a new forever family, which is the Christian church that we can see around us. So that's the reality of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5, 6, as Dave spoke so helpfully on last week. Paul gets increasingly practical with the reality of the gospel. So there's no gap between what we understand of Christ as the Spirit of God reveals the truth of God to us and how we live. It's increasingly mind the gap between what you know, who you are, and therefore how you live. And last week, Dave was on the familiar territory for some of us, chapter 5, verses 21 to the end, 33, which is wise and husbands. And it, it's a founded on that sentence, chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that applies in this household code, the uh, households of the day in Paul's time in the Roman Empire. There would be uh, rules and regulations of how a household would function. And Paul is standing on the shoulders of the first century and saying, here's a Christian version of the household code. So here's how the gospel applies to this is how it's seen in your relationships. Chapter 5, verse 22 and following. And now Paul says this is how it's seen at work. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, um, is on parenting, and then it's on to work, verses 5 through 9. So these three areas of relationships, husband and wife, children and parents, and then in the workplace as well, masters and servants. So it's Jesus, I'm going to flip it, Jesus in your work, Jesus in your family, Jesus in your life. Okay, Jesus and your work, Jesus and your family, Jesus and your life. Let's get to it, time is short. Jesus number one, and your work. Let's look at chapter six, verses five to nine. Jesus and your work. This is about your workplace. The workplace has thoroughly been redefined in modern 
society, and especially in the last 18 months, loads of people working from home and flexible working hours. But look at what Paul says, verse 5. Slaves, obey your masters. Verse 9, masters, don't misuse your slaves, or something like that in your translation. So slaves and masters are written to, and we need to do a little bit of groundwork. You can see from the picture on the screen, when we think of slavery, it's very easy for us to make a connection to the 18th, 19th century, where slavery was abusive, it was racial profiling, it was around the slave trade and the triangle from the United Kingdom to the Americas into Africa. It was abusive, it was horrible, it's hard work, and Christians did a lot of work, William Wilberforce, Newton and many others to transform and uh, be done away with the slave trade because it was so horrible. That's not how we're to read and understand slavery in the Roman Empire. Here, just a few facts to get our thinking right about slavery in Paul's context. Here we go. Slavery in the Roman Empire was never based on race. You were not sold into slavery if you were black and you were a master if you were white. That's just far too simplistic. But slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race. Neither was it something that was always looked down upon. So slavery was not lifelong. You'd normally be in slavery until you're 30 or a maximum of 30 years, and then you could have a liberation, you could have freedom. So it's not racially bound. It's not for all of your life or unto death. That's not slavery in Paul's context. Also, it wasn't always abusive or unkind. People would willingly choose to sell themselves into slavery because your social standing, your education, your well-being, your welfare, you could sell your whole family into slavery and you would work for a master who would, uh, if you picked the right one, if they were kind of upper class or even middle class, your status was linked to their status. Your welfare was linked to their welfare. So sometimes people would sell themselves into slavery that was not racial, that was not lifelong, because actually slavery, a third of the Roman Empire were in slavery, it's estimated. So slavery is not in the first century as it was in the 18th, 19th slavery. And it's very important for us to see and understand and for us to realize, wait a minute, that's not the slavery that perhaps I'm thinking about. So it's not race-based, it's not violent, it wasn't brutal. It wasn't lifelong. It wasn't based in the Caribbean. It's in the, the Roman world. And Paul writes to modern-day Turkey, to the church in Ephesus, and says, this is what I want you to understand of how the gospel, chapter 1, 2, 3, applies to work, whether you're a slave or if you're a master. Here are some things about work that I think Paul wants us to understand, whether we are in a work context as an employee or an employer. I want us to think radically, as Paul does, about what it means to understand the workplace as a Christian, whether you're at home in a shed in the garden, whether you're on flexi time, whether you're in shift work, whether you're still traveling into town or Leatherhead or Rygate. You need to understand what Paul says. Paul's writing this household code, an owner's manual, how the Christian uh, message applies to marriage and now to work and to family life. And this is something immediately striking. If you were not a Christian and you're writing this household code in the first century, you would write, first of all, to masters. But that's where the context of work would end. And so Paul is absolutely radical. Look, verse five, he writes to slaves. Verse nine, he writes to masters. He writes to slaves first, the lowly, those doing the menial, the servants in a household. 
those who are doing the jobs that the masters don't want to do and they're employing it to do to, them to do it. And Paul doesn't treat them as uh, agents who don't deserve to be addressed. He, as it were, with his quill, looks them right in the eye and honors them and says, I want to speak the gospel truth and apply it to your life, whether you are in the household and you're in charge. You're the master. Verse 9, it applies to you. Verse 5, whether you're a slave, or you're, whether you're a worker and a servant, it applies to you too. Look at verse 5 again. It's not just uh, addressing them by writing with his quill and looking them in the eye, as it were. He says, verse 5, this is how you're to work. If you're scrubbing the floors, if you're uh, involved in education in the first century, serve, verse 5, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. So Paul is addressing them, and therefore, there's no such thing in Paul's eyes and gospel eyes as lonely, lowly, kind of menial, a job that you overlook. Someone who cleans the floor, someone who can, you can look through, someone you can pay the minimum wage to, and that's a, a signifier of their work. Paul says there's nothing like that, because all work is God's work. Now, you get that from the first chapter of the Bible. In the first chapter of the Bible, God is creating the world by a word of his power and sustaining authority that we enjoy still today. The first thing we read about is uh, God speaking a word and creating order from chaos, order from darkness. And the spirit of God is hovering like a bird over the uh, confusion of the world and bringing order and beauty and majesty to it. And that's exactly what he still does today. He brings life into situations of death. In other words, there's no part of creation, Genesis chapter 1, 1 through to chapter 2, that is less important to God. It's not like, here's the important part that I want you to understand. It's about the mountains and the birds and humanity at the very pinnacle. But you don't need to know about the darkness and me bringing order. It's not just about the creation of beauty and majesty. It's also the creation of order. And so all work is precious to God. It's a direct line that we can draw from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and following. All work is bringing life and meaning and meeting other people's needs. So you're a janitor. That's an American word, excuse me. But you're someone who's here, like the caretaker. The caretaker is not important. It's the teachers and the management that matter. Not so. If you don't have a janitor, if you don't have a cleaner or a caretaker, it's jolly hard to educate children in an environment that's busy and untidy and uncared for. So that means Paul, the caretaker, matters, and he matters to us because he's so kind. But then you don't despise those in authority over Paul either. You need a head teacher. You need teachers. You need learning assistants and dinner people and so on. It's so important that we see and have a healthy biblical view of work where all work is God's work. So everyone has dignity. Whether you drive a bus or whether you work on computers, it doesn't matter whether you're a homemaker or whether you're someone who designs houses, all work matters to God. And there's no work that isn't God's work. Book of Genesis tells us. So that means that all work is God's work. But then there's a second implication, which is all work requires all of your heart. If you have a biblical understanding of vocation of work, whether you uh, yeah, design a NASA shuttle or whether you deliver babies, doesn't matter. Both are valuable. You need to have a biblical understanding of work, and then that works on your mind and on your heart. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect 
and fear. This is what Chris spoke helpfully about. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. It says people pleases in some translations, which is helpful. But like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly. That word wholeheartedly means joy and zeal, as if you're serving them with an audience of one, meaning God, your heavenly boss. You kind of think this is a weird description. You have an earthly boss and they're important. Paul says there's someone who's even greater importance than your earthly boss. And that's your heavenly one. And he's always looking at you, whether your earthly boss is on vacation or holiday, whether they're out of the room and you're tempted to have a two-hour lunch break with the uh, Italian jacket syndrome. I'm in work, honestly. So if you can see there's someone at my desk, you know how it works. Paul says, was that just me? Paul says, it really matters that you work hard because all work is God's work. Therefore, all work requires all of your heart. But you might think, well, my boss, if you knew my boss, they don't deserve a hard day's work. Paul says that's not the point. Whether your boss deserves a hard day's work because they're a good boss or a good employee, they're kind and fair, whether unjust and harsh and lazy. Paul says you're not working for them, you're working for me. You're working for a boss of one. And he, God, always deserves your best. Whether you're at flexi time at home, whether you're uh, transporting into work, God deserves a hard day's work because he's such a kind master. He's always fair. He's always generous. Look at him if you've got a boss who is brilliant and kind, a line manager who's fair and looks out for your best. Thank God for that person. But equally, and perhaps even more so, if your boss is unkind and your line manager never asks how you are, work for the one who always knows what you need. Your creator, your redeemer, your king, work for him. Be wholehearted in your work, be productive in your work, and look at him with excellence. Here are two interesting results when that happens. You'll be liberated from work. When you understand a biblical understanding of work, that means you're liberated. You don't have to overwork. Neither will you underwork because you see who you're working for. But also when you work like that, you will be desired. You're not guaranteed employment, but if you work hard, I guarantee you will be noticed. Guaranteed you will be noticed. And probably bosses will be falling over themselves to get you into their employment or into their part of the office. Paul is encouraging us to have a good biblical understanding of work. All work is God's work. Therefore, work at it with all your heart. Don't look down on anybody. Value everybody equally. That's Jesus and work. Here's Jesus and family really quickly as well. Look at verses one to four of chapter six. This is the household code. We looked at marriage and relationships, end of five. We've looked at work. Now we're going back to family. Look at verses one to four. There's something for children to do and there's something for parents to do. Now, this has caused some heart searching in the past week, perhaps as Chris alluded to as well. When you think about parenting, you if you are a parent, you immediately reflect on um, how you are uh, cared for as a child and also how you seek to love those if you have them under your authority and care. Look at what uh, is told to parents, verse 1, chapter 6. It's firstly addressed to children. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. Verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Could be uh, 
We'll notice how children are called to uh, respect and obey both their parents, but then Paul zooms in on fathers, and I've been scratching my head. Is that because Paul is thinking that the father is an authority over a family unit? Possibly. Could it also be, knowing my own spirit, that fathers are more tempted and have a tendency, as someone's chuckling on the front row, to exasperate their children? That's also possibly true, especially in my household. But uh, I think there's a difference between teasing and all seriousness and joking. We need to know when to stop that and when you can enjoy that together to what Paul is talking about here. This uh, phrase, do not exasperate, is very different from the context, again, that Paul was writing into. In the Roman world, children were a commodity. The emphasis was on discipline for parents and not love. You could abuse your children and get away with it. And Paul says, God knows nothing of that. And the gospel will be seen in families that knows nothing of that. Children need discipline and they need love. They need love and they need encouragement and discipline too. And this phrase, do not exasperate your children, really do not infuriate your children. It's such a different approach in the first century and in the 21st century when Paul explains how the gospel and parenting interrelate. Paul's saying, don't do anything that makes your children perpetually angry. Don't do anything, mum or dad, or even grandparents, you could say, that makes your children perpetually angry. How do you do that? Two ways. Two ways, I think, of how you can make a child perpetually angry. I tell you this not so you will do it, so that you will not do it. I think here's the first way. Over-discipline. If you want to make your child bitter towards you, if you want to exasperate them, if you want to frustrate them, the main way to do that is to be harsh in discipline. All children need discipline. But if you are excessive, if you are severe, if you are deliberately uh, abusive of your authority, if you're unfair, if you're uh, arbitrary, if you are uh, deliberately disciplining your kid in front of other people, if you want to humiliate them, intentionally or unintentionally, that will exasperate your child. And so that's a temptation and mistakes I've made as a dad of over-discipline, of not having a quiet word with your child on the side. It's over-discipline that makes you, can make a child exasperated. Here's another equal danger, which is under-discipline. Over-discipline and under-discipline is a different picture. I need to give my child everything they ask for. I'm just going to show my love to them with my credit card and they can have whatever they need. If you are so linked to your child's happiness, and maybe you're reacting against your own upbringing, but under-discipline is just as dangerous if you're not consistent, if you're not fair, if you're afraid to show your child, your son or daughter, any kind of disapproval for behavior that is not appropriate, really you're indulging your child. And that will harm them as much as over-discipline, believe it or not. You're spoiling them. It's a perfect way to raise a child who's always angry by overindulgence. And Paul is saying, be aware of both dangers. Dads, mums, parents, do not exasperate your children. Do not make them perpetually angry. That's one thing you shouldn't do, but then something you should do. Look at what Paul says, verse four, don't exasperate or infuriate your children. Then he says, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And again, Paul's departing from the first century and certainly from the 21st century culture as well. Here's Paul saying, in the first century, children were a commodity. Discipline them, do whatever you like with them, and no one will ask any questions. It was open 
to awful abuse. It's about discipline in the first century. That's certainly not the modern mindset in the 21st century. It's about overindulgence. The purpose of family is happiness and an easy life. It's your comfort. Don't impose your views on your children. How dare you do that? Let them grow up to whoever they want to be. That would be a modern, hopefully not a straw man, but it's a modern understanding of parenting. Just show them love. Just throw them discipline. And Paul says, no, it's both. Don't harm your child by overindulgence or over harshness. Discipline is vital. So is love. Love and discipline together. And what's the purpose? Verse 4, to bring up the child. To bring up the child. It's been said that uh, boys, it used to be 18 and then set to 21. Boys probably don't become adults until 25 because they just they want to stay at home and they're overindulged. Sadly, there's too many laughs, too much laughs going on. Um, but here's Paul saying, look, don't overindulge, don't um, over or under parent, but seek to bring your child up so that they can make their own decisions. Bring them up so that they are co-adults with you. Bring them up so they can be friends in their 20s and 30s with you, so that they know right and wrong themselves. They're arrows, says the book of Proverbs, and arrows are always designed to be fired out. They're not to be held on to. Equip your children, train them, love them, nurture them, discipline them, and then send them out. That's all for parents to do. And then look at what children are encouraged to do as well. Verse one, children obey your parents in the Lord. Verse two, honor your father and mother. Number five from the 10 commandments. One is temporal, one is permanent. So we're to obey our parents until we've been brought up, until we're adults. Then you're not under their authority anymore. You don't have to obey your parents as an adult, but you always have to honor them. And boy, is that a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching when your relationship with parents is is difficult. When you look back and think of the mistakes that were made, and we can always think that we'll do better. But the Bible says obedience is temporal, but honoring is not. We're to honor our parents with our lives and with our lips and with our attitudes. And that is such a challenge because we live with fallen people. But becoming a Christian means you bring this gospel into every area of your life, says the Apostle Paul. He says, whether you are married, Jesus and your marriage, whether you're in a family, Jesus and your family, whether you're a worker, Jesus and your work. How on earth do we honor our parents throughout our life? How do we have an appropriate understanding of work? We need to quickly look at Jesus and your life to close. Jesus and your life. What's the key of being the best parent you can under God? with all the mistakes and foibles that we all have, and a healthy understanding of work. Here's the key. Paul said the key all the way through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and beyond. But the key to neither over-disciplining or under-disciplining your child, or overwork or underwork, is that you understand the gospel afresh. You knew the answer, didn't you? Paul said it in chapter 1 through 3. He tells the story of a son. Jesus was and is the true son, who lost the love of the true father so that we could be children of the only father who will never let us down. It's the gospel. When we know our heavenly father, when we know we're loved, we don't look or need the approval of our earthly boss. We want to work hard, but whether we get it or not, we're liberated from overwork because our heavenly father has shown the degree that he loves and approves us by sending his son from heaven to earth to win us back, to die for us, to forgive us. 
if you're working today for self-esteem purposes, if you're working today mainly for approval because your parents didn't give it to you, mainly for power because you want to manipulate others and you want to be a somebody, you want to have a name, maybe for status, when you understand the gospel, see a heavenly father who loves you, you have all the approval you need and he'll never let you down and he'll never leave you. Frees you from overwork you from being driven into the ground without that understanding of the approval of God upon you in the cross work will make you a slave the gospel makes you a free person that makes you a son you'll always be frustrated you'll always be driven unless you see God in heaven who loves you how do you avoid uh, over parenting or under parenting once again when you see God the heavenly father who loves you and set his love upon you that means you don't overparent because actually parenting is about you and you want your children to represent you well. Neither will you overindulge because you're afraid of losing them. And you see a father in heaven who loves you and gave his best for you. He's the ultimate master who makes us who are slaves free. And he's the son who, because of his life-giving death, makes us sons and daughters of the king. Jesus, you see, changes everything. Changes your marriages, your work, your family. He you changes your whole life. And Paul says the gospel should change everything too. 